So this passage here answers a question that I know has undoubtedly weighed heavily on the minds of every one of you. And that is, why is it that the Jewish people in rural areas celebrate Purim on the 14th of Adar, while urban Jews celebrate it on the 15th? That is the question that is answered here. And perhaps we might read it and say, I don't know where there's any relation to my life, any relevance to what I'm struggling with. But remember, the Word of God is not a human book. There are a lot of levels to what's going on here. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but when I read a book of the Scriptures... One year, it says to me one thing, and it, it, it reaches my life, it intersects with my struggles and my heart in one way, and then I read it again a year later, or two years later, or three years later, and it is an entirely different experience. Not only am I different, but God in His Spirit is applying it to my life differently. There is an unlimited amount of wisdom and inspiration and conviction and that sort of thing that can come from God's Word. And so we open these words and we look at them. And I think that as we are uh, now almost halfway into the season of Lent, and as we have come to God in repentance and asked Him to draw us closer to Himself, perhaps what we see here in Esther chapter 9, verses 11 through 19, is a message about momentum. Momentum, spiritual momentum. Now, momentum, uh, I remember learning about in school. You remember momentum, right? Uh, Newton's first law of motion. Objects in motion tend to stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force, etc., etc. And, you know, I think it's fascinating that, well, we can measure and fully understand momentum, something like that. We, we can get the physics and the mathematics of it. There's, there's formulas and there's measurements and everything. Momentum is just as real, although unmeasurable, in many other ways. I think, they, I think of sports teams, for example. Most coaches or teams would probably, if they had to face against a team that either had a losing record and was on a hot streak, or had a pretty good record and wasn't, they'd choose the better record and not the hot streak. Am I right? You don't, want to, you don't want to face off against someone who's won 10 in a row and they're building more and more and more momentum. The same thing you can see if you even look at perhaps military history. Once one victory leads to another victory to another victory, it sometimes seems that that momentum is unbreakable. Maybe it's psychological. Maybe there's something more going on in such situations. But here we see that there is an even deeper spiritual reality to this. The way that God calls us to follow him and to be faithful in small things and then to be given more more and more and more responsibility to, to go from victory unto victory. I'm fully aware that this morning I may accidentally weave into the sort of language that a word faith prosperity preacher might use when telling you that God wants you to be good looking and rich and healthy and happy all the time. Just know that if you hear me use some of the same language, I don't mean the same things. We do follow a God who wants us to deny ourselves and to follow him, to leave behind the things of this world and to seek after the face of our Savior, to follow Jesus who had no place to lay his head and to be people who are humble and, and lowly of heart, spiritually poor. But when God gives victory throughout the scriptures, I defy you to, to find a, an example where this doesn't work out this way. It propels people forward. Whether we're talking about Old Testament military campaigns or we're talking about the missionary thrust of the early church, this seems to be how God works as long as we don't get in the way of it. 
However, we tend not to ride the wave of God's working often. Humans often will want to, after a victory, after a big push, after some success, take some time off and say, you know what, let's just hang back, regroup. Now, certainly there is a place for Sabbath rest, to stop and rest. Jesus did that throughout his earthly ministry. Certainly there is a place to stop and reflect and return thanks when God has accomplished something great. As they were wandering uh, in the wilderness and that time came to an end and they, they found themselves, the, the Israelites, on the verge of crossing over the river, entering into the, the promised land. They paused in the plains of Jericho. There they rehearsed the law and renewed their commitment to the covenant. There they rested and praised God. Absolutely, but then they entered in and began the conquest. Or we see here, this whole book is telling us how this Purim celebration came to be. It was a time of thinking back to what God had done and to rest and to give thanks and to say to God, you are great and highly mighty to be praised. And yet this is only possible because they had seen it through to the finish line. They didn't stop after one or two victories and say that's far enough, that's good enough. We do have that tendency, I think, in the church. We can take it easy for a while. After a revival happens, I, I've, I've seen at, at uh, Christian colleges where a revival will come up and people will say, hey, great excuse to, to skip class. They can't get mad at me if I was at the, the prayer meeting that's, that's blowing up and everybody is kind of experiencing revival. And it, it comes, it burns hot, and then it begins to kind of wane, and the people just go back to ordinary life. And you say, well, I don't know if it was really a revival if it doesn't push us forward into following him more closely going forward. The same thing can happen in churches as well after a great season of, uh, of, of bringing people to faith, of, of baptisms, of, of God being at work in mighty ways. And then we'll stop and say, okay, well, that was good, but let's slow down. Let's go back to how things were for a while and we'll see what comes next. I wonder what God might do next. In the New Testament, they, they ride the wave right after the day of Pentecost. 3,000 are added to their number. There's amazing conversions of people, mass conversion. They're hearing the gospel preached in their own language. God is drawing them to himself. And they don't stop and say, all right, it's been you know, 10 days waiting for this to happen. Let's wait 10 more and maybe God will move again. No, they immediately move down into the temple courts and start preaching and preaching and going out. And before long, we find the gospel on its way to the ends of the earth. This is the momentum I am talking about. You bring a, a family member to faith who didn't know the Lord and then go, whew, that was hard work. Well, let's take some time to just kind of stop and recharge, maybe a year or two or three or four. Hold on a minute, there's, a, there's, there's some momentum here. And now you've got double the spiritual manpower. Maybe go and find some more family members or neighbors who don't know the Lord. And with the zeal of new conversion and a, a person recently bought by the blood of Christ, you can push forward and bring the gospel out even further. Objects in motion tend to stay in motion unless acted on by an outside force, except that there's always an outside force, right? That's why if you throw a baseball, it doesn't just keep going forever. Gravity, the force pulls on it, and eventually it goes down to the ground. Or even if you hit a, a hockey puck, on ice even, friction is the force that's going to make it slow to a stop. And so we can leverage this sort of spiritual momentum, but if we just sit back and watch, we will lose it. Now notice the momentum here in the book of Esther. 
It begins with Esther going before the king, and there has been momentum even in how she does that. It starts little, and then it grows and grows and grows. The first time she went to the king, and I'm not going to rehash the entire book of Esther, but the first time she went to the king, it was a huge deal. Because she had not been, she was the queen, yes, but she had not been invited. And in this culture and in this setting, if you went unbidden before the king, you would be killed unless he said, you're okay. And he extended his uh, scepter to you. And so, before she, when she finds out Haman, this wicked guy, has passed an edict that says at the end of the year, all of the Jewish people can be killed, their possessions taken, they can be wiped out off the face of the earth, she, she says, all right, I need some time. I want everybody, all the Israelites in all of Persia, to take some three days and to, to pray, to fast, to put on ashes and sackcloth, and, and go before the Lord and petition the Lord to save us. And then there's even this slow buildup in how she approaches the king. She goes before him tentatively and says, you know, I'd like you to come to this meal that I've prepared you in Haman. He comes, and then she says, okay, let me tell you what I want. I want you to come to another meal tomorrow, and there I'm going to tell you the real thing that I want. And then they pray all the more. The next day, finally, she makes the big ask. And she says, I need justice in the, in the matter of this wicked, vile man, Haman, who has worked out our destruction, the destruction of me and my people. And the king gives it to her. And Haman is put to death on his own gallows. And it is incredibly ironic and fitting, uh, very much what we might call poetic justice. But now she comes again. And she says, okay, now that he's dead, we still need to deal with the fact that at the end of the year, our people will be wiped out. And so what we need is another edict. He says, okay, write the edict that you want. They write the edict. That day, they are allowed to defend themselves. They've been allowed to prepare. They've been allowed to build an army, something that otherwise would have been seen as rebellion brewing. No, you're allowed to do it for self-defense. And after that day of fighting, they have successfully defeated their enemies, pushed them back, even in the citadel itself, the capital, they have put to death 500 of their enemies. And now we see Esther going in for a further request, where she says, yeah, it's been great, but one more day. One more day for them to fight against their enemies and defend themselves and really root out their enemies amongst your people. Even in the way she words these things. It goes from this really long preamble the first time she comes to him. My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request. That's an awful lot of hemming and hawing and couching. This last time she comes to him, she simply says, if it pleases the king, do this for us. I think we see in this very much a pattern that a Christian will follow through tentatively coming to God. Will, will he possibly find favor in me will he grant me favor to, to hear my request and and to fulfill it and over time we recognize i've found favor that's what grace means favor unmerited favor he, he didn't find it in me he put it in me he put it upon me and so now i can go before the throne of god with boldness and i can ask him for what i would have and like queen esther the only thing i need to say is if it pleases you if it be your will, not my will, but your will be done. But this is what I would like you to do. We come to him and ask him for more and a further request and a further request and another request. And we begin to understand that a kind and loving father like this will give us good things. So her requests are these. First, and this is going to push against the flannel graph picture you have in your mind of Esther as this prim and proper 
lovely, kind young lady. Undoubtedly, she was kind, and we know she was lovely, but she does want the ten sons of Haman, who've been killed in the fighting, to be impaled publicly on stakes and put out as kind of a warning to everyone else, don't mess with our people, and don't mess with the queen, and there will be consequences. That's the first request. The second is, Esther now, who has... She's been in the dark initially. She didn't even realize that this genocidal edict had been passed until someone brought it to her attention. Now the tables are turned and she seems to have intel about the specifics of the enemies and knows that there are more people out there who are planning evil against them. And so she, she knows that they are not fully defeated and now she says, we need another day. And what happens when he grants it is the fighting moves from in the, the citadel itself to the rest of the city. And more people, 300 more, I believe, are, are killed in the fighting amongst their enemies. And then they get the report from the rest of the empire and, and the numbers are staggering. And so she says, let's push it further, a little further, a little further out, a little further out yet. I have a further request. Jesus taught the same thing. In Matthew 25, we have the, that parable that ends with, you have been faithful with a little, I will set you over much. You're faithful with a little thing, I'll set you over much. Come to me and ask for more. Come to me and ask for more. Matthew 13, 12. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is not talking about possessions, and none of this is talking about possessions. I'm not saying uh, it's good that the rich tend to get richer and the poor get poorer. Rather, Jesus is talking about spiritual momentum here. Those who have, they've received. They know they've received from God and by his grace, and they come to him and on their face ask for more, and he gives more. You're entrusted with more because you've been faithful with little. Esther and Mordecai kept their momentum going. But the scriptures are full of many examples of people who have lost their momentum. And I think those are useful to look at as well. One example that comes to mind is Nehemiah 4. Now the background of Nehemiah is that uh, shortly after this, uh, another group is going to return to Jerusalem, which had been completely flattened, and they're going to go back and try and rebuild the city wall around it so that it will be a place that can be protected against their enemies. The king grants them this request, and they head out, and they start strong, and they start building, and they've got some momentum mounting. But then we read in chapter 4, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. That's verses 10 and 11. And in those two little verses, I think we see great insight as to how it can happen that we will lose our momentum and grind to a stop. First of all, in Judah, it says their strength was failing. Now, there's a little sheet in your bulletin that says sermon notes. You might want to pull that out and take a pen or a pencil and write some things down. Because we see here a very important truth. They were relying on their own strength. And when we rely on our own strength, we will lose our spiritual momentum. They were relying on their own strength and they saw their initial success start to flag. They were starting to slow. And so they started to grind to a halt. They said, by ourselves, we cannot rebuild the wall. And yeah, that's true. By yourselves, you can't rebuild the wall. That should have been for them a, a, a source of more spiritual momentum. To trust in God, to look to Him, to do what they could not do. The God who from the very beginning had done what they cannot do. But instead, they said, I think this is it. This is the end of the project. 
If they had looked to him initially, they would not have had this dip in momentum. You see, momentum is not just about speed or distance or force. It's equally determined by the mass of the object moving. That's the formula. Does anyone remember the, the, the formula for physics class? What is it, Sean? Force equals mass times acceleration. There you go. So, so you've got mass, you've got velocity. You combine them, you just multiply them, and you get your momentum. And so they are not thinking about the, the weightiness of the God they serve. And if he is moving them in this direction, all these jokers around who say, oh, we're going to come about, hey, we're going to come, we're going to get, it, it shouldn't matter. They know that their God, who has seen them through greater trials than this, will be faithful again. Secondly, they started focusing on the obstacles and lose focus on the mission. When you start focusing on the obstacles, you start to lose momentum. What's the obstacle here? There's too much rubble. Really? Rubble is the problem? Apparently, yeah, it became overwhelming. There's too much rubble. We can't rebuild this wall. They're looking down at the problem and not up to the God who will give them the strength to carry out the task. We think of Peter also. That, that iconic moment of Peter stepping out of the boat when Jesus said, walk to me. And as long as he looked and fixed his eyes on the Savior, he was able to move forward. He had that, that forward motion. As soon as he looked down, he saw the waves. He looked, uh, somehow looked at the wind. I guess he just saw the effects of it blowing all around. These are the obstacles to him reaching the Savior. And as soon as that, that happens, he sinks. And Jesus has to grab him and keep him from sinking to the bottom. The obstacles get in the way. You know, I, I, I see this in churches all the time. We, I, I fall victim to it myself, certainly. We'd love to do this great thing. We'd love to do this great thing to bring the gospel out. We'd love to do this great thing in order to, to feed people. And, and we'd love to do this great thing in order to show God's love in tangible ways. But budget constraints, am I right? But we're not some huge church with thousands of people. Could we really even do that? We focus on the limitations, the obstacles, rather than keeping our eyes focused on God and saying, give us a bit of momentum and let's see what you can do through us. The, the, the Jesus who, who fed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. Maybe, maybe he could use a congregation of willing people willing to submit themselves to his will to do something great, even greater than we dare to ask or hope. Thirdly, they listened to their enemies and believed what the enemy said instead of trusting in their mighty God. They won't even know we're there until we kill them. That doesn't even make sense. If you kill them, they won't know you're, you're there at all, right? I mean, they're, they're, it's nonsense. They're listening, but they're, they're ready for their confidence to be shaken. They're ready to lose momentum. They're, they're primed for it. Now, think of those three aspects with Esther. She was not trusting in her own strength. Immediately, she said, I need everyone sackcloth, ashes, fasting, praying. If this is going to happen, if we are going to be saved from this, it's going to be God doing it. She didn't focus on the... There were so many obstacles. Haman is entrenched. He is the right-hand man to the king. He's passed the edict. The, the seal's been placed on it. And now it cannot be undone. The law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be reversed. It cannot be repealed. That's a big obstacle. And yet still, they look forward and say, God, what can you do for us? How can you save us? How can you work in our midst? Thirdly, they, they didn't listen to the enemy, Haman, and believe when he said, yeah, you'll all be wiped out soon. Oh, and you know what? I think I'll kill this guy, Haman, whom I hate sooner. They didn't listen and just accept their fate. They looked to God for deliverance, and he delivered them. 
I think another, briefly, another example would be Exodus 14. The Lord said to Moses as they are fleeing, uh, leaving Egypt and, and fleeing from the army of Egypt that's now coming up behind him. He says, why do you cry out to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So there they were trapped between this massive army and the Red Sea. And they said, God, how do we, how do we, I wish I hadn't left. That immediately becomes the rallying cry around everybody. Moses is a bad leader. We should never have left. We should, I wish we could go back. If only we could go back. That's the opposite of momentum, right? Forward momentum says go forward. I want to go back. If only we, could, we had, we had leeks and onions and everything there. Remember, it was good. Yeah, we had to make all the bricks and we were slaves, but it was good. I remember as good old days. Well, God says, why are you crying out to me? Go forward. Lift up your rod, stretch out your hand, and he parts the Red Sea. And they go forward through it. Then the sea drowns the uh, army that's coming after them. And you would think at that point they would say, all right, we see that this God can do anything. Let's go. Momentum. Forward. No, very quickly. And I don't think we can look down on this at all because you see this happening throughout church history as well. They begin to lose that momentum. And they lose it through... Uh, let's see, grumbling? It's a very little thing, but it begins to slow them down. It's a force acting <laughs> on, on the momentum. Sin itself and idolatry enters into the camp. And i got to say, 40 years wandering in the wilderness for what should have been a three-week trip seems like the ultimate in lost momentum. But perhaps giving the background of Esther, it would be most fitting to kind of go back to 1 Samuel 15 and 16 and 17 and look at King Saul and how he lost his momentum. Don't worry, I'm going to kind of skip through it. I know it's three chapters, but just look at briefly at it. And as I mentioned again and again in, in, in our study here, Esther is in part the story of how God gave a second chance to his people to make right the huge failings of King Saul. And he said, let's, let's have a do-over. Let's do this again and see if you might be faithful this time because I'm a God of grace and a God of mercy. And so we look back and see how earlier King Saul dropped the ball when dealing with the Amalekites and King Agag. This is kind of a deep cut story, but King Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites as part of a holy war, the conquest. Um, it's troubling as we read it now, but we don't have time to deal with, with all of that. Just uh, let's, let's read the text itself and we'll see what it says. 1 Samuel 15, thus says the Lord of hosts, now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not have compassion on them, but put them to death. People, uh, oxen and donkeys, camels, uh, sheep. But Saul and the people spared King Agag and the best of the sheep the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs. What's happening here is not that King Saul was a sweetheart and he said, I, I, I really don't think I can put a, a fellow king to death. Rather, he saw an opportunity to grab some plunder and to have a king who answered to him and bowed to him. And so when Samuel arrives and he hears the bleating of the animals and he sees that King Agag is still alive, he loses it and he gets angry and he rebukes Saul. And then he takes his sword and he cuts King Agag to pieces before the Lord. 1 Samuel 15.10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Where Saul had done less than God asked and had stopped short 
of devoting everything to the Lord and had taken some of the plunder for himself, the Jewish people under Queen Esther went back for an extension on the initial edict and said, no, we can do even better. We can go even further. We can wipe out the house of Agag from the earth. We can even take his ten sons, the last remaining people in his line, and put them up on, on spikes. Uh, this is the, the first part of the edict and the second part of the edict here. But a lot happens between Saul and Esther, like 500 years worth of stuff. And God is not silent then. And God is at work as well. Because immediately afterward, Samuel, who had anointed Saul, who had mentored him and helped him, spent years loving him and instructing him, correcting him, often rebuking him, he saw that God had withdrawn his spirit from him and was, and was done with King Saul. And he became very upset, crushed, it says he was angry and cried out to the Lord all night. He thought Israel was sunk now. Then the next chapter begins. 1 Samuel 16.1 The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. He said, it didn't work out with Saul. I kind of warned you about that. You wanted a king like the nations. I gave you a king like the nations. This is how it turned out. But now we're moving forward, not going back. The temptation is ever there to go back. You know, life often happens to us, right? You know, you lose a job, a good friend moves away, a conflict you thought had been resolved comes roaring back up, suddenly flaring worse than ever. You find yourself, in a sense, having to start over. For me, recently, I, this is a dumb illustration, but I think it, it, it captures it a bit. My car got stolen, and for two months... I didn't buy another one because I thought they're going to find this thing. They're going to find it. Yeah, somebody stole my 2000 Camry and kept it in pristine condition, and it's just waiting to be discovered and returned to me. And the main thing wasn't even the car. It was dumb stuff, all the stuff in the car. I wanted it back. I wanted to go back and get my stuff, I wanted, especially my CDs. I yes, CDs, compact discs. I still use them. I had 116 in the car, I know, because I counted the empty jewel cases in my house. And I said, I want those CDs back. I got, I, they got to find it, God. Come on. I'm not going to move on to MP3s and start buying digital. I bought Huey Lewis 4 on record, on tape, on CD. I'm not buying 4 for the fourth time. But I guess I'm going to have to if I want it because it's been stolen. And I'm thinking, I, you know, as long, whatever happens in life, this Huey Lewis situation, it's taken care of. And now all of a sudden, it's upended. And I want to go back. But when it feels like we're starting over, we're just looking from the wrong perspective. Because God is moving us forward. Even using the sin of others, even the wages of sin, which is death sometimes, things of which God is not the author, he still uses them for his purposes. And for our good. When someone has left, a friend turns their back on you. When someone has left your church and you say, oh, I want to go back. We've got to, how do we undo all this? It seems like we, there's no way forward. Instead, perhaps we need to turn to God and say, God, what will you do for us going forward? What, what, lay, what lies ahead of us? Instead of focusing on my old situation or my old job or my old car or the old stuff, the old ways that things were before, momentum pushes us forward. I think of another Saul in the New Testament whom God knocked down on the ground and said, you're going to be my guy now, struck him blind. You know, while he was lying there blind, helpless, in a city where a lot of people didn't like him, he had to have been thinking, God, how do I get back? 
get back my sight, get back to my old life, get back to the way things were. I'll be better, but I got to go back. There's no going back for this guy. He's God's guy now. And, And so when we look back, instead of looking forward, we lose spiritual momentum. I'm preaching to myself up here. You just happen to be here right now. There are two ways I think this plays out. First of all, we, spoke, we focus on past failures, and that kills momentum. Some people have come to me again and again and again throughout my ministry before I came here and since, saying to me, you know, there's sins that I've committed in the past I don't think God can forgive. And I know it's hard to get past some of these things, and it's natural, and you keep bringing it to God, and you keep trusting Him to give you peace And it's an ongoing, lifelong struggle sometimes, but I think we also need to recognize you will not move forward until you stop focusing on the past failures. You'll not get any momentum. The other way is that we kill momentum by losing sight of the the mission and focusing instead on past successes. I mean, not Baptist churches, but some churches do that. They get really obsessed with some golden age in the past, some previous era glory days or something. In the church... On the other side of the pandemic, my continual concern is how do we get back to how things were before? And I have to check myself. How about how do we move forward into the world as it is now? And how do we minister and be the hands and feet of Jesus and bring the message of salvation in the world as it is now? Rather than trying to go back. You know, in the book of Ezra, which uh, kind of straddles the book of Esther as far as timing, uh, they go back to Jerusalem They start rebuilding the temple. They lay the foundation. They dedicate it. And there's all these people gathered around. Some of them are old priests. And they have been in Jerusalem before and saw the glory of the old temple. Some of them are new. And they were born in the exile. And so they're they're new to all this. And there's this great shout that goes out. Some are shouting for joy and praise. Like, look what God is doing. Yes. And the old timers are shouting in lament. Look how lame this is compared to the glory of our old temple. So that you could not distinguish one from the other. I think the idolizing of the past is a great way to very quickly kill momentum moving forward. Well, Israel did move forward. And you may know that Saul was certainly not the last king of Israel. As we move into chapter 17, we see this boy David starting to take center stage. And he has this incredibly famous story where he fights a giant named Goliath. I bet you've heard it. And there we see how David was in many ways the opposite of Saul before him. He did not fall into a lot of the same self-obsessed traps as Saul did. He does not, he does not drag himself backward or, or slow God in his uh, propelling him forward. He builds momentum like nobody's business until that afternoon they're already singing Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. That's like an actual song that was tearing up the Israelite charts. The story starts with David, who's a young shepherd. He's not even old enough yet to fight in the army against the Philistines. He's watching his father's flocks, and his father Jesse says, why don't you go bring some food and some provisions to your brothers who are fighting and find out how it's going, and then come back and report to me. And so he goes, and he overhears Goliath taunting the people. It was this ancient practice in which instead of having a massive battle, they would say, how about our champion fights your champion, and we'll just agree whoever wins, wins the day. So Goliath is this massive giant. He's he's out there saying, "If, if anyone would dare fight me, I'm ready. And he's mocking them, and he's cursing their gods with the name of his gods. And we see David unable to take it. And we see a number of ways in which he does not give in, and in which he leans into what God is doing and creates great momentum. 
First of all, unlike in Nehemiah 4, he does not listen to his enemies and believe what Goliath has to say. He doesn't say, oh, no, that guy's, wow, we're in trouble if what he says is true. No, he knows the enemy is a liar. Jesus said when Satan lies, he speaks his native tongue. And so he knows this guy's guy's just lying right now. And it makes him angry. But it's not just those who are outside, even his own brother. He has to make sure not to listen to him and internalize what he's saying. We read in 1 Samuel 17, 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, and that you have come down just to see the battle. And of course, after that, then Goliath himself, when he sees David coming out to face him, says, Uh, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine looked and saw David. He disdained him, for he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He didn't didn't listen. He listened just long enough to say, yeah, you're going to eat those words because my God is great. Now, this brings us to the second way in which he did not fall into the Saul trap, but rather leaned into what God was doing. He did not despise small beginnings. This is something uh, we might draw from Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4.10 uh, talks about he who has despised the day of small things, or some translations say of small beginnings. Because momentum starts small, and then it grows, and then it grows, and then it grows. So you, you, you can't look down on small things and small beginnings. Push a boulder down a mountain, and at first you can only move it an inch or two or three, but eventually it's going to start going faster, and, or better yet, a snowball down a mountain. It's very small at the beginning, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows as it rolls down. 1 Samuel 16, 11, we see how small these things started. No one even thought of David. Samuel got that word, why are you whining about uh, Saul? Let's move forward. Go to the house of Jesse. He went. He lines up all of his sons, his strong, strapping, battle-hardened sons. And Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. The the subtext is he's a nice enough kid, but he's a little ruddy guy, and he's not exactly king material. He's the one that God tells him to anoint as king and becomes the greatest king perhaps who ever lived. There's more humble and small beginnings in this story. For Samuel 17, 33, Saul said to David, you're not able to stand against the Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. You can't do it. You, you're, it's just too small of a response. It's not proportional. David says, listen, I've got momentum. I've been, yes, watching sheep, but a lion or a bear would occasionally come into the, the camp and try and grab one of my, shri- my, my sheep, and I didn't just, like right off the loss, I would grab the lion or the bear by the jaw and club it to death. And what I did with a lion and a bear, I'm going to do to that guy. And so he recognizes that he has been building, and you've been given a little, been faithful in a little, and you will be given more. First Timothy 4.12, I think, reflects on this, this story, this, this pericope. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy was going around, he was laying on hands and, and assigning elders and doing all this ministry, but he was just a young guy. And Paul said, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Today, I think we might add, don't let anyone look down on you because you're old and society has decided you're not the, the most desirable demographic. But trust that God can do things that start small and get huge. 
No one, though, wants to start a little snowball running down the hill. That's silly, right? I'd feel dumb. What's the point? It's not worth my time. Thank God the South Cedar ladies' aid in the 1920s didn't think it would be too small and insignificant to smart a little children's Bible class or we would not even be here right now. God starts things small and then shows that, in fact, that's his preference. We just said a few weeks ago how Gideon had this massive army. And God said, no, 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 you'll think that's you. You'll think that you get the glory for that. And he pairs it down until it's tiny. He says, let's start with that, and I'll show you what I can do. Then you'll know that it's me at work and not you yourselves. In Esther, it started with fasting and prayer with a couple of dinners prepared by the queen. And before long, thousands of the enemy are being defeated all throughout the Persian Empire. When the battle started between David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, 40, then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. That's a very humble beginning to a battle. And it looks like he's going to be stomped. Before long, this, they're going to say, that stain is where poor David was. That's all that's left of him. But God is at work. Thirdly, David did not let fear slow him down. This happens in Nehemiah. That happened in the wilderness. It could have happened with Esther. David did not let fear slow him down. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, for they were much afraid. Nobody would stand up to him, to Goliath. And in verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David didn't run away. It says David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Fear is another way we very quickly can lose momentum. You've heard it maybe from Baptist pulpits or read it in email forwards that in the Bible it tells us do not be afraid 365 times, one for each day. And that's cute, but it's not true. I saw someone try to put it together and, and come up with it, and they, they, they maxed out at almost 200. And I said, that's still a ton. God is telling us do not be afraid, for the Lord is with you. Fourthly, he cared more about God's glory than his own. In verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He is not going to, to take it. God's name is more important than his own safety or comfort. Fifth, he trusted in God's strength, not his own, and that resulted in more and more forward momentum. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a shield and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. In Zechariah 4, right before that, don't despise the day of small things passage, there's another famous passage, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Forward momentum means we are living in the spirit and trusting in the power of our God. You know, let's stop though at five for the five smooth stones. That's a very Baptist preacher thing to do. The result of this momentum Versus Saul's lack of momentum, we see in 2 Samuel 3, with the summary statement, the house of David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. That's the result of, I mean, this is a no-brainer. That's what happens with momentum or no momentum. 
But even David was not immune to losing this spiritual momentum in a Godward direction. 2 Samuel recounts David's victories against the Philistines, the Moabites, against Syria, Edom, Amalek, uh, the, the, the Persians, uh, even against Zobah. Even I don't know what the heck Zobah is. But he defeated them, and it continues with great momentum right up through 2 Samuel 11 when sin enters in. And then suddenly, there is the end of David's great, kingly, godly momentum. Then he starts up a different momentum. No longer from victory unto victory, you see his sin begin to snowball and go in a different direction. Now, quickly, lust turns to adultery, lies turn to murder, and before long, once great King David is this defeated king, at least in spirit. And then, of course, in Psalm 51, we see that God even can save us from our own sin, even save us from our own turning away and begin again a good work in us. But sin causes us to lose our boldness in the faith, to lose our confidence in God, to lose our assurance in our salvation. We want to be, you know, like David, but don't be like David, okay? David fell into sin like this. He's not the hero of the Bible. Jesus is. We only want to be like David insofar as David was being Christ-like. And I think that's what we need to remember as we go into Lent and continue through Lent wanting to have more and more spiritual momentum right up to the big triumphant morning of Easter. You may think, you know, yeah, I, I went there, and actually very few came on Ash Wednesday. It kind of disappointed me how few came for a, a service of uh, repentance and, and uh, dying to self. But maybe you say, I, I was there, I was there in spirit, and yeah, we began this journey together. I've been there before, though. And, and maybe it seems... Like it's doomed to fail. You know, I've, I've tried starting something new in my spiritual life, and I always seem to grind to a halt before too long. Listen, whether you came or not, repentance is not a one-and-done thing. This was the primary concern that Luther had in 1517 when he started the Reformation. When, when we read penitence or penance in the Bible, it's not about doing these acts of penance. It's repentance. We're called to a life of Repentance, ongoing repentance. That's what Lent pushes us toward. That's the direction and that's the momentum. And all that we've covered this morning applies as we seek to follow God more closely in the coming weeks leading up to Easter morning. First of all, it starts small. A few people gathered in a sanctuary getting little crosses put on their heads, smudges, it seems like nothing. A few people gathered together for a prayer meeting saying, We're going to follow God more closely by His grace. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's do this. It seems small. It seems humble. It seems cute. But God being at work, these things tend to spin quickly out of our control and into His. In the summer of 1806, five students at Williams College in Massachusetts decided they were going to meet in a grove of trees. There they were going to discuss some matters of biblical importance. But a thunderstorm blew in. And they quickly took shelter under a haystack until it cleared. And while they were sitting under the haystack, their conversation changed. One historian puts it this way. The brevity of the shower, the strangeness of the place of refuge, and the peculiarity of the topic of prayer and conference all took hold of their imaginations and their memories. And so they wound up talking about missions, something that was rather new in America. And this became known as the haystack prayer meeting. Incredibly famous. Books have been written about this and the impact that it had. 
It gave birth to the first foreign mission board in America, which sent out its first foreign missionaries from America just a few years later, and on that ship were Anne and Adoniram Judson. By 1840, the group that came out of that haystack prayer meeting and had sent missionaries to the Cherokee Indians, to Sri Lanka, to, uh, to Hawaii, to China, to Singapore, to Thailand, Greece, Turkey, Syria, the Holy Land, Persia, and Western and Southern Africa from a, a prayer meeting under a haystack. And so that's how we want to approach these things. Yes, they start small. Trust that God is at work and that each time we are faithful with small things, he will give us something more. A further request, as Esther put it. Secondly, like Esther asked for one more day, go to God for one more day. I say, I, I can't the rest of my life. I've got to uh, overcome this sin or this awful ungodly attitude or I've got to be faithful in reading the Bible and praying. I, oh, I, can't, I can't even think of it in those terms. It's too much. Okay, one more day. This is how Seinfeld became so... Uh, Successful, I guess. He, he had a calendar, a paper calendar. Remember? There was a grid, and there were numbers in them. And every day, he would write some jokes, and he would put a big X in that day. And before a few days were over, he saw I had a chain going, and I didn't want to break the chain. So every day, he'd do it just a little bit, and he would put a an X in it. Now, this is, this is just basic kind of like productivity hack, pop psychology stuff. When God gets involved, and he begins to give us this spiritual momentum, things get crazy quickly. 40 days of Lent is a long time. Yeah, Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness, and I guarantee he took it one day at a time. How else can you? In fact, he then tells his disciples and us, pray like this, give us this day our daily bread. A good gloss for that, a good translation would be, give us this day what we need today. And in our spiritual lives, the same thing applies. Give, us, give me today what I need for today. Help me to be faithful right now in this moment that I have. I don't even know that I have tomorrow, so let me be faithful today, Lord. People facing sin or addiction will often say to themselves, hey, I'm taking it day by day, and there is great wisdom in that. Momentum is good, yes, but don't let it turn to confidence in the flesh. That will also kill your momentum. One day at a time, God will give us what we need for that day. Sometimes you have to take it hour by hour. Lord, help me get through this hour and be faithful to you. Remember when Joshua was fighting and, and, and he said, oh, we could win this battle, but the sun is setting. It's going to give them a reprieve. And he prayed, God, give us one more hour. And the sun didn't set. One more hour, one more hour, and God gave them 24 more. Thirdly, we don't want to listen to the enemy who will whisper in your ear, it's not going to work out. Just, just you know what? Be content to be someone who's got this secret life of sin and this public life in, in worship and as an upstanding city. It's, it's fine. Everybody's that way. We both know that's who you really are. Don't listen to the enemy. Listen to Christ who tells you you are a new creation. And don't fixate on past failures or present obstacles or worries about the future. All the stuff we've talked about already, it all applies. If you're saying to yourself, I've tried this before, but I failed, or I had that for a while, but then it slipped away, that's proof that you had it. And you can have it again. That if you turn to Jesus and say, Lord, this time, this time I need to day by day have what I, I lost, the momentum from before, then he will grant it to you. Let me close with one more little story from David's days of huge momentum before he went off course. After defending against a Philistine attack, I don't know where this is in relation to defeating Zoba, but uh, at some point, he had, he had been attacked and they responded and they crushed the Philistines. 
He turned the tables on them entirely. It was a very Esther-ish reversal. Let me read in 2 Samuel 5. David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has burst through my enemies, burst through them before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of the place is called Baal-perazim, which means the Lord of bursting through. Some people are going to say it's the Lord of breakthrough, but I think the word breakthrough has been ruined by those word of faith preachers and things. So we'll say the Lord of bursting through. Because this isn't talking about God promising you that your business and your health and all your dreams and everything will come true and your bank account will break through to higher levels. But when it comes to seeking the face of God and overcoming our lusts and laziness, our sin and selfishness, our anger, our avarice, breaking the momentum of besetting sin in our lives and seeing God move us in another direction, we serve the one who was killed and laid in a tomb And the tomb sealed shut with a Roman seal and a detachment of Roman guards, probably 30 of them, set with swords and and javelin that they had already used to kill many people so that nobody could come in and touch the body that was locked in that tomb. And then on the third day, the tomb burst open and this guy just walked out. Do you think maybe he can burst through whatever is holding you back? from spiritual momentum in your life? If you've been coasting along in your spiritual life, getting a little fix here, a little bump there, pray to God for some momentum and begin building it now, day by day, hour by hour. Start small. That's how all great things start. Start small. Be faithful day by day. Believe God will build it up. Believe me, he will. Belperazim, the God of bursting forth, will work in you both to will and to work, as the scriptures say. He's both the author and perfecter of our faith, as St. Paul says. That means that he started the thing. In fact, he says exactly that. Be confident of this. He that began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And sometimes it happens in just incremental steps, plodding along the narrow way, and sometimes it's a big bursting through But God is faithful when we trust in Him to be faithful. Momentum's not just about speed or force. It's equally determined by the mass of the object moving. That's why He could tell us that our faith, even the size of a mustard seed, could move mountains. That's why if, oh, I don't know, Alana came up here and got a running start and slammed into me, I bet I could stay standing. But if Matt Zajac did it, I'm probably bouncing off that wall. It has to do with the the strength, the weightiness of the one who is at work, the one who is moving. And if it is God who is moving, then we can know there is no obstacle, there is no enemy, there is not even anything in myself that must make me grind to a halt. Lord God, we thank you for this uh, nearly the end of the book of Esther, where we read about another day. Give us another day to push forward. Give us another day to be faithful. Give us another day to fight. Lord, we pray that you would give us yet another day that we would seek your face today and and trust you for what we need for today and then trust that tomorrow you'll be there in that new today. Lord, that we wouldn't listen to our enemies. We wouldn't look at our obstacles and fixate on them. We wouldn't look to the past and think that's an idol or it's some kind of unbreakable curse. Lord, that we would look ahead to Jesus Christ who died on a cross and rose again, who ascended to your right hand and is now reigning. Lord, we pray that we would remember the momentum of an omnipotent God is something that can never be brought to a halt. Lord, we pray that we would trust in you 
in all that we do. In your holy name we pray. Amen.